we're a few minutes late, I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, start up our reading today. Um, as always, thank all of you for joining us. Uh, this is the Losing Lottery Quarantine Collective and our ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. We may be finishing today. We may have uh, a handful of paragraphs left over. Um, we are going until it looks like probably about 2.30 my, my time. Uh, the recording is on as of a few moments ago. Yes, Roger. Um, should have announced, sorry. Um, uh, let's see. On the chopping block for quick announcements, uh, we are going to have uh, the mods and admins are having a chat later today about kind of the future of what we're doing on the server and plans. Please, if you have ideas on next text, other readings, ideas for us at large, don't hesitate to toss them into the suggestion channel. Uh, we are looking to do uh, some larger projects next year, which is going to be exciting. So we're going to have uh, some talks on that, and we'll be able to talk more about that in the new year, which is just a few days away. Um, we usually do most of our announcements on Monday. Uh, please uh, check our calendar up above, and you can uh, see what else we're doing on the server. There is a ton. On here, our partner server, the uh, Continental Philosophy server, uh, it's, we've got a lot of shit going on, but the biggest thing is going to be anti-Oedipus, of course. So uh, unless anyone has anything, uh, speak now forever, hold your peace, I'll continue moving on. All right. I believe we were at uh, the bottom of 374, if one keeps in mind. Excellent. <clears throat> if one keeps in mind the tautological statement made above, one can then understand that people whose preconscious investments of interest do not or should not go in the direction of capitalism can maintain an unconscious libidinal investment consonant with capitalism, or that scarcely threatens it. In the first case, they confine and localize their preconscious interest in wage increases and the improvement of the standard of living. Powerful organizations represent them, which get nasty as soon as the nature of their aims is questioned. Quote, it's clear that you're not workers. You have no idea whatsoever of real struggles. Let's attack profits for a better management of the system. Vote for a clean Paris. Welcome, Mr. Brezhnev. That's my uh, old-timey radio voice. And how, indeed, could one fail to find one's interest in the whole, where one has sunk it, at the heart of the capitalist system? Or else, in the second case, there is truly a new investment of interest, new aims that presuppose another body than that of capital money. Those exploited become conscious of their pre-conscious interest, and this interest is truly revolutionary, a major break from the standpoint of the pre-conscious. Uh, first, what is the uh, tautological statement from above? Because the previous paragraph and a few paragraphs are like 92 million nightmarish uh, pages. Uh, what is the tautological statement? If one keeps in mind the tautological statement made above, is it that capitalists have the interest in capitalism? I gotta reread the paragraph, I'm sorry. That's yeah. okay, take a second. I there's a few things that are totally tautological. The the one that seems the most clearly tautological to me is capitalists first have an interest in capitalism, because that seems almost absurdly tautological. It's a commonplace statement they say, and they go on in that paragraph to say. Capitalists have an interest in capitalism only through the tapping of profits that they extract from it, but no matter how large the extraction of profits, it does not define capitalism. They kind of explain it, but it's capitalists first have an interest in capitalism, I think. And then it 
uh, this paragraph is about taking that statement, uh, capitalists first have an interest in capitalism, one can un understand that people whose pre-conscious investments of interest do not or should not go in the direction of capitalism can maintain an unconscious libidinal investment consonant with capitalism or that scarcely threatens it. Uh, people, like I think everyone on the server, I don't think anyone here is necessarily a capitalist, but we and our family, uh, our families, our friends, uh, people who are not necessarily capitalists, even if they may fancy themselves that, uh, they actually maintain unconscious libidinal investments consonant with capitalism in, in concert. We, we're in line with it. Uh, we do not threaten it because that's the way of the system. In the first case, they can find and localize this pre-conscious interest in wage increases and the improvement of standard of living. Workers bitch about, we want to be paid more. I want life to be better. Uh, and if life is better, they're quite happy. And Powerful organizations represent them, which get nasty as soon as the nature of their aims is questioned. Um, I mean, if you've ever dealt with unions on being on the inside or even watched them on the outside, uh, you do not question aims of, of any of these organizations or any of these nonprofits. Um, um, to your point, if you were to suggest to someone who's fighting, say, for higher wages that they're actually, you know, they're, they're actually supporting capitalism, they would... <laughs> they would go crazy, right? <laughs> I think it's also about, you know, how you take those goals and stuff, because I'm thinking about my own history in the union movements, and, like, there's the very, you know, you have to take, like, SCIU, that's a big one in the U.S., started out as a janitorial union. They, like, were organizing people that nobody wanted to organize in the 80s, and they were super militant and super, like, down. And, you know, they did good stuff in their later years and stuff, but if you go to Chicago now... <laughs> They have like multi-story, like gigantic buildings. I remember during the Obama years, they had a giant portrait of Obama right there in the front hall. You know, and I think no, no organization is like homogenous, you know, so the stuff that happens on the ground, like these the, the rank and file were very involved in lots of really radical stuff. But it does become this question of sort of the larger goals, like as it becomes more institutionalized, you know, it feels like an, an obvious point in the sense like they, the managers of the union are more And there it is. The uh... so the the party just uh, boycotted him. We've cut his voice because he's going and criticizing uh, the great party. Well, let's be clear. He's not workers. He has no idea whatsoever of real struggles. SCIU <laughs> <laughs> shut me down. No, it was me. <laughs> oh, it was yeah, all anyway. of us. That was the point. It's the party, yeah. But it's, it's an interesting thing. And then the second uh, half of that is where they go. In the second case, there is truly a new investment of interest, new aims that presuppose another body than capital money. It's uh, basically that uh, capitalists have an interest in capitalism. So fuck them, toss them aside. Everyone else either really falls into a place where their pre-conscious, unconscious interests are in line with capitalism uh, or they go in another direction where their investment is into something else. Again, it's a bit, this whole thing's a bit tautological and a little, little simplistic, but uh, I think that's what they're trying to say. Yeah, and so we've seen them come back to this point throughout this work, right? That you can be unconscious, that, that what's happening can be consciously revolutionary and unconsciously reactionary, right? That is to say that if you focus on the pre-conscious investment like they're talking about here, right? So like, arguing for higher wages, arguing for a more efficient market. You know, what we saw earlier with the New Deal and that, 
you know, that does have pre-conscious effects, there's no doubt. But in terms of what's being invested unconsciously, what's happening in terms of that production, there is a reactionary investment being had. And I, I do want to agree with Alyosha. The welcome, Mr. Brezhnev line is pretty fucking great. <laughs> um, the, the, I, 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 uh, my favorite, one of my favorite podcasts, Warnerd, uh, is doing a multi-part series on uh, Boris Yeltsin's coup. And it's phenomenally interesting, worth, worth checking out, uh, just to put out a recommendation about that time frame and how things were going around, and the switch of the Soviet Union. But it is not enough for the libido to invest a new social body corresponding to these new aims in order for it to perform a revolutionary break at the unconscious level with the same mode as the pre-conscious break. In fact, the two levels do not function in the same mode. The new socius invested by the libido as a full body can very well function as an autonomous territoriality, but one that is caught and wedged in the capitalist machine and is localizable in the field of its market. For the great flow of, of mutant capital repels its limits, adds new axioms, and maintains desire within the mobile framework of its expanded limits. There can be a pre-conscious revolutionary break, no real libidinal or un and unconscious revolutionary break. Or rather, the order of things is as follows. There is first a real libidinal revolutionary break which then shifts into the position of a simple revolutionary break with regard to aims and interests, and finally reforms a merely specific re-territoriality, a specific body on the full body of capital. Subjugated groups are continually deriving from revolutionary subject groups. One more axiom. This is no more complicated than in the case of abstract painting. Everything begins with Marx, continues on with Lenin, and ends with the refrain, Welcome, Mr. Brezhnev. In this, is this still a case of revolutionary speaking to another revolutionary, or rather a village clamoring for a new prefect? And if one were to ask, when it all started to go bad, how far back must we go for an answer? Back to Lenin? Back to Marx? So true is it that the various investments, when, even when opposed, can coexist with one another in complexes that are not the province of Oedipus, but that do concern the socio-historical field, its pre-conscious and unconscious conflicts and contradictions, about which it can only be said that they fall back on Oedipus, Marx the father, Lenin the father, Brezhnev the father. Fewer and fewer, fewer people believe in all this, but it makes no difference, since capitalism is like the Christian religion. It lives precisely from a lack of belief. It does not need it, a motley painting of all that has been believed. I'm having a hard time grasping this paragraph. I read through this last night, and I had the same issue. I was hoping it would be able to be cleared up if I read it aloud. Sometimes that happens for me here. Um, so, like, okay, if you put this into um, on a timeline, you know, the past, the present, the future, the new socius is something, you know, that would be uh, out of this revolutionary break at the unconscious level. But because it is, you know, embedded in time but in so in, into the, 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 the spatial aspect that is you know real and tangible it cannot really move away it's there's always a break but the fold actually refolds the revolutionary break back onto the tradition 
So there's always, you know, um, the Erstat is always there. You know, uh, the capitalist machine is always there. So the if 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 we break, this is the conversation we had about politics just before. If we are making a break outside of the market, but because we are from the market, we will refold back into the market. And this is a really problematic moment in history where, you know, the unconscious has become so much embedded into capitalism because it is a product of capitalism through the market of desires that uh, anything we will, any alternative, any break we will do will refold into capitalism. And what they're saying about this um, uh, out of subjecti- uh, subjugated groups are continually deriving from revolutionary subject groups. So basically, um, you you have this, this multitude of people, if we take back the, the term of art and negri, and then you're going to get a subject group that is going to try and break out from, you know, the current state of affairs, but because it will state its claim and uh, the Erstat or the state will respond in return and the market will respond, uh, this, the, subject, uh, this, uh, the subjugated groups will emerge again from this uh, renewal of the market. So we're always into like a continuous, like eternal return when it comes down to this. But I think you could just read this section as them just hammering home that point of like the stuff we spoke about yesterday. The, the point of the libido is that it invests the entire social field. So they say it's these are not the province of Oedipus, but concern the social historical field, its preconscious and unconscious conflicts and contradictions. Like they're trying to come up with a way of talking about why do people, you know, do these things that seemingly go against their interests that doesn't boil down to base psychologism or boil down to some kind of like they they think the state is their daddy. Like there, there's ways that that manifests itself in representation, but that isn't the the reason necessarily. That's almost an effect of this originary, you know, libidinal revolutionary break, which I think applies both to something like the Bolshevik revolution, as well as capitalism itself being a way of, of constantly creating these breaks. But then, yeah, I agree with Roger that you keep creating subjugated groups out of it, even though it appears to be. So like, you know, tankies, like we're talking about in the chat, they get really attached to that image of the original revolutionary break. And they're not able to kind of see how subjugated groups can still derive out of that in the sense of not being in, in Deleuze and Guattari's language, not being subject groups anymore and being participating in all these flawed things. Yeah. And, and this is, this is big to say this into the seventies where everybody like, you know, everybody around Deleuze at the time had their communist party card. Uh, but he was the only one not having it. And to, um, go that way into a full, you know, left-wing Nietzschean perspective about like whatever we do, we'll, you know, we'll buttfuck ourselves. Um, it's, it's big at the time. And, you know, like it, it was probably clashing a lot with the more traditional Marxist or, you know, the, uh, the red revolutionary groups. Yeah. To put it very bluntly, one of the main points they're getting at is we always think the subject subjugated group isn't us. Right. So like, uh, it's like the Sinclair Lewis line. It can't happen here. We always think Nazis are other than us. We always think the state is other than us. We always, uh, you know, we don't want to understand ourselves as subjugated, except in this pre-conscious way where the subjugation becomes a means of power. And then the, con- then, then the subjugation is truly consummated, isn't it? Um, but to that point, right, like 
this is a really heavy critique of not only uh, of Marxism in that sense, but even how we do our own groups is ultimately that's what I think they're getting at is like, you know, with this whole idea of going back to Marx, the father, Lenin, the father. I mean, if you talk with a socialist today and Marxist, this is still what they do is like everything's got to go back to that time when they had it right and we just misinterpreted them. Yeah, that line, uh, let's go back and find out where it went wrong. is a so, really yeah, interesting so one. This is interesting because uh, when it comes down into religion, because they say capitalism, or capitalism is a religion, but Marxism and revolutionary thinking could be also an eschatological or teleological form of religious thinking in the sense that, you know, if we act according to what God asked us to uh, do, you know, we would go back to uh, Evan or Eden or whatever it is. But it's the same thing in the revolutionary promise. If we would do exactly what, you know, Marx or Fourier Bar before him told us to do, uh, we would have the complete revolution. You know, it's like there's like a mode of instruction that is being there and people it's like an it's like political alchemy. You know, it's saying that uh, if, if we do stuff in order, we will reach a goal so into this this political and i think that's the difference you know because i've been struggling with the political aspect of the losing quattery and uh, because i'm older and because i've been you know into left-wing stuff i still have this 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 ontology of direction you know in the sense that um revolution the revolution must have a goal and i think that the way they're doing it they're just saying okay let's get rid of intent and let's get rid of goals and let's see how the process can lead us somewhere else and it's it's really difficult for people in my generation to wrap our mind around this maybe it makes sense more for younger people but uh yeah it's uh it, it's a thing and it again that's another break from traditional marxism so yeah. to try to say That's it exactly. again, to try to say it again, uh, I'm going to try to reword it to make sure I understand this. Um, they're talking about the nature of revolutionary thought is it starts from a position of uh, true unconscious revolutionary break where there isn't necessarily even a goal. It's just things get to a point where we've got a shatter. There's just done. Uh, and then at some point, uh, the revolution ends up having some semblance of a goal and that goal uh, almost uh, on the paranoiac side of things versus the schizo, that goal has shape. And that shape uh, and that structure uh, is the thing that people start aiming for. Rather than just change, rather than just shifting things, we're aiming now for that structure of society or that setup. Over time, that structure gets harder, more ensconced, more more into it, more, more built in. And as things uh, sort of begin to fall apart, because that's sort of the nature of things, the more we get closer to these structures that don't actually exist and the more we need them to function, the more their uh, flaws are exposed, capitalism being a good example of that. Um, the, the thing they're pushing, they're, they're talking about is that that's essentially what has happened. And then people are so in, invested in the idea of the revolution or what the original goal was that they're unable to even start talking about real revolution again because they're already invested in this sort of molar concept of revolution. Mm -hmm. See, when I say when I say religion, okay, like it, it's 
Um, take take the example of people who are going to mass, like Christian people who are going to mass, like every Sunday. They go there, you know, and they feel that you know they're meeting God again, and you know there's the whole discourse, the ritual, the, the some form of praxis. But at the same time, you know, they they believe that they are the chosen one or whatever else, and doing good unto the world. But uh, what happens between Sundays, you know? And that's that's that that's a real question. So this 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 religious uh, aspect of a political program and political um, belief, you know, it's like a it's like a, an act of faith, you know, saying if we do this, it will give us this kind of, you know, after world, uh, the, the post-revolution world will be this because we're acting a certain way right now. Um, it's the same thing as religious people, you know, they say, oh, if I go and do my, uh, take the, um, uh, I don't know how to call this in English, but when you, when you eat the bread, you know, the body of Christ, it's like the redemption, you know, I, what if I'm doing this redemption acts, uh, it will lead me to paradise. Um, but at the same time, what leads you to paradise is what you do between Sundays, not what you do on Sundays. And that's the same for revolutionary thinking. It's not because, you know, you can recite part of, um, you know, the, the communist manifesto that you are a revolutionary. Revolutionary is changing how desire is going through you and how you're changing your daily and you know every act that you do in your life uh, this is the real revolutionary moment and you know how this leads to a crystallization into the collective um but just just the the you know thoughts and prayers won't cause a revolution um so i'm i keep I keep going back to this book um, that's sadly not translated into English, um, Beziehungsweise Revolution by Bini Adamczak, who also wrote this um, Communism for Kids book that maybe you've heard of, um, because that's translated. It's it's um, the best it's the best thing ever. You should buy it. If you are ever going to have children, you should have it ready for them. It's an amazing book. And even if you don't have kids, like it's really not only a kid's book and if you're scared of easy text there's also like an amazing afterword in it uh, but to go back to her um, larger book from 2017 and um, it's been a while since i've read it so i can't give a detailed account of it but um, she analyzes the revolution of 1917 the russian revolution and contrasts it with like the whole historical moment of 1968 and she does that with a kind of Deleuzian framework like it's not purely but there's a lot of Deleuze in there and um, the start of her analysis is basically that she looks at a scene that happened after the revolution and in, I don't know in the 1920s in, in Moscow um, where there is like this post Post, um, post-revolutionary nostalgia for the revolution. And the question is basically what happens? Why do the people that are now in this post-revolutionary um, society um, feel nostalgia for, for, for the revolution? And what it comes back to is like a really detailed analysis of like gender relations of the of the uh, revolution and how things shifted and how the revolution eventually failed and all that stuff. 
But um, the main bit about it is that um, the revolution was really um, a moment where solidar was where solidarity was like a tangible thing and not an empty concept. It was a practice. There were practiced. Um, Practiced um, practices of solidarity, and there was a real moment where structures were were could change, and it all it it all went to shit afterwards. But um, the point is that she tries to extract an idea of how this kind of structure of this kind of moment could be kept could be could be uh, like. Uh, spoken of and maybe utilized for future um, political projects. It's a really great book. I cannot recommend it enough. It's sadly not translated into English. We'll find a way to do it. But I, I want to add in, because um, I really like the, the thing in this uh, paragraph where they talk about sort of the change over time and how the revolutionary becomes almost reactionary. Um, uh, because one of the things when I was, you know, when all of us growing up, well, what happened to the Soviet Union? What happened to Shea? What happened to Mao? These revolutionaries who started from a place of, I mean, most of them, all of them, as far as I can tell, feel free to tell me otherwise, came at these things very much from a revolutionary curiosity perspective. Their writings were extraordinary. Um, I, I still think a lot of Stalin's writings are even interesting, and I'm not a fucking tanky at all. But at some point, they all, I, we like to say, or I like to used to say, that they lost their way. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily right. They almost had their way so strictly in front of them because they were so deeply invested in the concept that they had. We never lose our ways. Yeah. We Can never I, do uh, that. No. It's only the, the ways we are doing. We never lost No, it, we that's exactly doing. my point. We're, that's exactly my point, is that the way almost becomes so deeply crystallized for them that they're unable to see anything else but that goal. Well, one thing I want to offer something here is that what, I don't think we're all necessarily doing this, but I think one risk of this line of argument that we're making is that, and we talked about it yesterday, is that you can, you can kind of end up in what I think accidentally looks like, and I don't, I'm not saying it is, but it, it starts to look like the worst fears people have about like postmodernist relativism. And what I think we should think about for me in particular is like, I don't think we, we shouldn't just take a heuristic uh, and generalize it. Like if a revolution has a goal, that means it's inherently reactionary. It's, it's not really that because, you know, I think it would be very rich to tell people in like, you know, the 1811 slave uprisings in, the, in Louisiana that, oh, you want to, you have a goal? That means that your revolution isn't real. Like, it, it's not what this is about. I think the point is to think about, uh, there are different kinds of goals, you know, and there, there are goals that are sort of like policy decisions and sort of a very specific, uh, you know, despotic signifier type attempts to move in a particular direction. And then there's kinds of goals that are about establishing a new plane of possibilities or new plane of imminence. And I think it actually speaks in our contemporary times. You think about Black Lives Matter. I think one of the hilarious things that I always think is besides the fact that there's plenty of actual concrete proposals that scare reactionaries and conservatives, the thing that I always hear in every social movement, whenever it happens in the United States context, at least, is there's always this thing of like, well, what's their, what do they even want? Like, what are they, what are they asking for? You know, it's just a bunch of anarchy. Like they don't really want anything. And there's a part of me that has to chuckle because I'm like, well, Besides the fact that I think there are actual 
worthwhile goals that that aren't just like reactionary, you know, re-territorializing things, even if there weren't, this is kind of the point. I'm like, the, the point is to, it shouldn't stop, you know? And I think if you are part of a movement or a group or you're trying to change something and it's like, all right, we need to defeat the Tsar. Like, of course, the Tsar is fucking oppressing everyone. But if you think that by defeating the Tsar, you have now, like Roger said, you've arrived in the promised land, you've kind of already set yourself up even from the beginning for a kind of failure. You need to be able to see these as, as just moments and moments of opening up possibility. And if you don't keep that going, you know, like Qatari is coming from this Trotskyist tradition where they, they're very obsessed with the idea of permanent revolution. And I think not wrongly, you know, in the sense that you, so we shouldn't get into a point of like, and I don't think anyone here is doing this, but of that kind of like intellectual post-leftism where you essentially refuse to participate in anything because you say it's all compromised. I don't really think that's what this is about. It's more about saying, you know, that you, you your horizon no, you're, matters. You're, com how you you're completely right. I, uh, a very, very short, simple version of that from my life, at least as I'm understanding this. Um, I, I grew up in Denver and all I dreamed was of being able to sort of moved to a bigger city and San Francisco was that uh, because it was a, a tech hub, uh, freedom, all kinds of stuff, whatever it was. And two things could, I eventually moved there, uh, got a good job, really had a great time. Uh, then at some point I had almost achieved that goal. The question would be whether or not I started to understand that that goal was what defined it. And if I stayed there trying to, because it, it ended up not being what I thought because it, San Francisco is kind of a nightmarish neoliberal hellscape. I assumed it was this really left-wing thing. Um, but instead, uh, I ended up sort of changing around what my expectations were and what my goals were. But I could have just stayed there uh, and, and tried to fight for it and tried to put myself in a position where I really believed in San Francisco, which would have been just decimating to me morally. Um, it, it feels like that kind of goal and achievement of it. I, I, I'm not trying to shit on anyone who has a goal. The, the Haitian uprising had the goal of freedom and it ended up turning into what it turned into. It, it's not about having a goal directly. It's about how we regard that goal and how we sort of deal with that as a thing that continues on. Again, it's the Zizek line. Uh, so you've had your revolution, now what? Mm -hmm. Okay, so now let me let me just say something because I think the issue is less to talk about does this have a goal or doesn't it have a goal. I think we should rather talk about what role does goals speak. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, what uh, what um, role do goals play in how we speak about revolution and how we practice uh, like in our political practice because um, this talk of a revolution having a goal supposes a very specific kind of political subject revolutionary subject and i think that's um, a bit kind of what they are getting at here that um, uh, like this this presupposition of a unified revolutionary subject is actively hindering like um a really creative like in the sense of producing new social things um re revolution because you're so focused on capturing all these lines of flights again you're 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 kind of you're kind of focusing on 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 capturing the revolution again 
you're not letting it flow in that sense. And I think that's helpful uh, to look at goals in the same way that we know from works and to look at possibilities. Goals exist in retrospect. We can identify what 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 um, what the what the direction of revolution was when we analyze it um, from af after the fact, but looking at it um, in the sense that there's this unified revolutionary subject that um, that aims at this goal in the process is actively squashing all revolutionary potential. That's also something that in the Adamczyk book uh, is really emphasized. Uh, she develops this notion of a, of a synaptic construction of the revolution, um, which basically goes to the point that it's about, it's, it's not about this vanguard party, about this unified revolutionary subject. It's very much about the proliferation of desire in ways that breaks the 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 the, the structures and um, not in capturing um, capturing uh, this this um, the, this movement and I think in a very theory practical sense I like to say that if your political theory supposes that a better society is only possible if everyone has understood your theory then it's probably a bad theory for political practice. And I think that gets at a kind of the same point. I'm just going to say, Lou, I'm always eternally impressed with anyone who speaks their second language better than I do my first. So uh, really great. Uh, thank you for that very much. Um, I'm going to continue on to the next paragraph because I think this will be we're going to have a series of review sessions, I have a feeling, for this entire section. Um, but the reverse is also true. Capitalism is constantly escaping on all sides. Its productions, its arts, and its science form decoded and deterritorialized flows that do not merely submit to the corresponding axiomatic, but cause some of their currents to pass through the mesh of the axiomatic, underneath the recordings and re-territorializations. Subject groups, in their turn, derive from subjugated groups by way of ruptures in the latter. Capitalism is continually cutting off the circulation of flows, breaking them, and deferring the break. But these same flows are continually overflowing and intersecting one another according to schisms that turn against capitalism and slash into it. Capitalism, which is always ready to expand its interior limits, remains threatened by an exterior limit that stands a greater chance of coming to it and cleaving it from within, in proportion as the interior limits expand. That is why the lines of escape are singularly creative and positive. They constitute an investment of the social field that is no less complete, no less total than the contrary investment. The paranoiac and the schizoid investments are like two opposite poles of unconscious libidinal investment one of which subordinates desiring production to the formation of sovereignty and to the gregarious aggregate that results from it, while the other brings about the inverse subordination, overthrows established power, and subjects the gregarious aggregate to the molecular multiplicities of the productions of desire. And if it is true that delirium is coextensive with the social field, 
and these two poles are found to coexist in every case of delirium. And fragments of schizoid revolutionary investment are found to coincide within blocks of paranoiac reactionary investment. The oscillation between the two poles is a constituent aspect of the delirium. So in a very simple sense, this is important to understand, right? Capitalism conditions both subjugated and subject groups. It's not as though these things can take place outside of relationship to... Um, and now we have this, this, this refolding of how subject group are rupturing from uh, subjected groups. And, you know, how we, we had the reverse before, and now we have them in the order. Well, they're always in the order, right? The subject group and the subjugated group, despite the oscillation between the two, are both conditioned um, by the socius of capital. Mm -hmm. But it's, I think it's the, the, it's the second part of the first process. Uh, okay, walk me through that. <laughs> Oh, because um, in the um, in the part before we said that uh, uh, subject groups uh, that wait um, what are that uh, subject groups can become subjugated groups, right? Yes, and now you know the um, subject groups are rupturing from subjected groups. Sorry, I'm having a hard time like with the English and French because I'm, I'm into the French uh, version. But, you know, it's like one produced the other and the other will produce the first. Right. And so in this sense, this is kind of the, the two hands of capitalism, as they talk about, right? On the one hand, capitalism does the schizophrenic, right? It does do deterritorializing and decoding. Um, and this is important because on the other hand, the Erstat is there, right? And so overcoding... Um, occurs as well. So there's a series of recodings happening here, both that can produce subject groups, can produce subjugated groups, and nonetheless allow for an oscillation of investments. That is, capitalism itself allows for subject groups and subjugated groups to not only be produced, but to um, oscillate between each other. Mm -hmm. And you know, when we, now we're saying like, uh... You know, there's the flows and breaking the flows. It's this the same metaphor that we were using about the pipes. Um, the pipes are producing certain types of groups, but it also like puts like uh, it saturates desire. You know, because it it creates uh, borders, and those borders are being forced upon, and because uh, it's the only those borders can be. Uh, can explode and that the flow uh, back into it. So it's always this this weird dialectic. I don't like to use dialectic when we talk about Deleuze and Guattari, but you know, it makes sense to me. This this weird dialectic between being uh, a subject and uh, uh, subjected, subjugated. You know, it's always this this weird like the revolutionary can only be the one that is oppressed. And, but the revolutionary will be oppressed. You know, it's always this kind of weird movement between, you know, one pole to the other. And, you know, when we talk about pole, it's going to be the, 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 the paranoid pole versus the schizoid one. But, you know, what's good about what those and Qatari do is that they, unlike other thinkers, they're not trapped. There might be a kind of dialectic that's happening. But the important part of this paragraph that I can see is when they're saying, Capitalism, ready to expand its interior limits, remains threatened by an exterior limit that stands a greater chance of coming to it and cleaving it from within. 
that is why the lines of escape are singularly creative and positive. You know, they talk, and just above that, they talk about the, the same flows are continually overflowing. There's a sense in which, like, it's like the oozing triangle. You know, there's no actual, even though it's oscillating between the two poles, it's not as though that is all that there is. It's not eternally trapped in this, you know, historical unfolding that's only ever going to be one pole or the other. There is this, there's this potential outside that is, doesn't, isn't always realized, but is still there as a potential. And I think that is kind of why they're, to me, that their stuff is so interesting because it, it doesn't, you read a lot of other theorists and it kind of, you know, no matter how lucid they are, it, it's almost like the Ursula K. Le Guin thing, you know, where she said, we, we, it's easier for us to imagine the end of the world and the end of capitalism. Like they, it's like, as though they can't even conceive that there could be something outside of it. And it kind of re-territorializes itself into almost like a religious ideology. Mm -hmm. And I would ask a question. Maybe they they talked about it uh, later because I'm I'm trying to wonder like in '72 what was the exterior limit of capital at the time? Because now we have the Anthropocene, we have you know the ecological crisis, we have you know massive restructuration. But like, what was the exterior limit to capitalism at the time? Communist regime or? Yeah, the, I think that's a very uh, important point because like. This this is written after like the whole thing of May '68, right? Where they run up to '68 with um, 56 in Hungary and like um, um, '68 in 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 Prague, um, where major points where a lot of Western communists turned their back to um, the USSR when before there was still a lot of idealism. Um, when looking at like Moscow and the real, real existing communism, if you want so. I mean, and don't forget in the U.S. that in 1968 was the famous Democratic National Convention where they basically completely fucking just threw out the will of the people and the revolutionary spirit. So it's it's a big deal. It was a big deal here. Uh, it was the change sort of to this weird new neoliberal order. 68 was just this global nightmare of everything sort of being subsumed by sort of neoliberal capitalist movement. It was, it's crazy. Everything falling apart. It's a fun story. China declared in 67 that the Soviet Union now is capitalist and the uh, Soviet revolution has failed. Um, didn't have much to do with uh, Russia, probably. But um, it was the year in which China um, engaged in foreign trade with the U.S. for the first time. I want to make sure, though, when we're talking, just to make a point of clarification, like, and this is goes in hand in hand with your criticism, like, we tend to discuss revolutions and that as events upon which everything is both simultaneously leading up to inevitably, and that will change everything that comes after, right? It's almost apocalyptical in that way. Uh, but for like Deleuze and Guattari, they're not understanding um, revolutions in this grand sense any more than the, the reactionary would be in that grand sense. They're understanding in terms of processes in the same way that there is not a schizo person, right? There is a schizophrenic uh, process through which um, desiring machines participate in the same way that the reactionary uh, operates in that manner, as does the revolutionary. Yeah, I'm going to uh, move forward to the next paragraph. I think um, uh, more about oscillation. 
It appears, however, that the oscillation is not equal, and that as a rule the schizoid pole is potential in relation to the actual paranoiac pole. How can we count on art and scientists? except as potentialities, since their actuality is easily controlled by the formations of sovereignty. This results from the fact that the two poles of unconscious libidinal investment do not maintain the same relationship, nor the same form of relationship, with the preconscious investments of interest. On the one hand, in fact, the investment of interest fundamentally conceals the paranoiac investment of desire, and reinforces it as much as it conceals it. It covers over the irrational character of the paranoiac investment under an existing order of interests, of causes and means, of aims and reasons. Or else the investment of interest itself gives rise to and creates those interests that rationalize the paranoiac investment, or, yet again, an effectively revolutionary preconscious investment fully maintains a paranoiac investment at the level of the libido, to the extent that the new socius continues to subordinate the entire production of desire in the name of the higher interest of the revolution and the inevitable consequences, the inevitable sequences of causality. In the other case, preconscious interest must, on the contrary, discover the necessity for a different sort of investment and must perform a kind of rupture with causality as well as a calling in question of aims. This is why we should hold off on some of our deeper conversations because it's like we start talking and we get about halfway through an idea that's basically talked about the next in the next paragraph. This yeah, this does feel like Bergson Lou. Yes, it does. Feels Bergson-esque for sure. That's good though, because you know that means we follow and we're following the line correctly because we're discussing what is coming after. Uh, but difference in French and English, uh, this is like there's no paragraph breaks. This is like one big thing. Well, I got to tell you, uh, it makes me really glad I don't read French. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know if I could handle this if it was one fucking long paragraph. Here's a here's Anti Oedipus. It's a single paragraph that's 922 pages. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, but like it's it's interesting. This this. Um this kind of breakage within the text because it uh, it creates two different uh, impression of the ideas because just of the, the format. Well, it does. And it also gives us, I mean, to be completely and wholly self-interested, it's like they designed it for us to stop in between and have discussions that would lead us to the next paragraph. Um, Oof. <laughs> Somebody was watching over us? Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Delusian gods. Uh, I, I mean, it's... So this, um, so this section is literally talking about the, the development of the goals and how the libidinal efforts and the pushes between the two sides of the oscillating poles, the schizo and the paranoiac, how they operate differently. Because they operate differently and not equal. The oscillating gods. I like that a lot. We're going to go with oscillating gods. Um, <laughs> But it, it, it feels like that's what they're talking about here. On the one hand, uh, the paranoiac, uh, uh, the investment of interest fundamentally conceals the paranoiac investment of desire and reinforces it as much as it conceals it, covers over irrational character of it under an order of interest, causes and means, aims, and reasons. It, the paranoiac investment actually has the things it's not aware of, the 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 lack of the actual knowledge. Again, the, the paranoiac poll is about 
uh, believing that the, the world is known, that you're able to define it clearly, but anything that doesn't fit that, you do this wonderful thing where it instantly becomes these blind spots. And that's what they're talking about, is these sort of blind spots that are created. I, yeah. I have a weird question before we go. Are we still into, are we, are we talking about capitalism as a whole, but, or the revolutionary uh, aspect of it? I think uh, I think we're talking about just how things work. Perfect, perfect, perfect. I don't I don't see this as being so. Let me be clear. I don't see this as being related directly to capital. That this book and this paragraph, uh, at some point down post capital, wherever the fuck we end up, a uh, hundred years from now, they could read this and go, "Oh, yeah, this generally works." Uh, boy, capitalism sounds like it sucked. <laughs> And that's how I that's how I'm reading it. This is intended to be about just in general how people uh, and the unconscious sort of investments are created and how are the two sides of the poles in the oscillation uh, create those investments and develop them. Yeah. So someone was would, going, would, someone was going to correct me though. Someone said yeah. almost. I would correct you also. Um, it's not capitalism that sucks. Ontologically, this is wrong. It's uh, ontologically, it's uh, capitalism produces suck. I can give you that. So, Capitalism also becomes the condition for that which doesn't suck, though. I think one of the things they're saying in this <clears throat> paragraph is that um, I think they're kind of talking about the celibate machine, like the, you know, the idea, like in Simon Dunn, like once the individual is individuated, it veils the process of individuation, um, just like the celibate machine in. Uh, desiring production. I think that what they're saying is the, the pre-conscious interest veils the, um, the unconscious investment, which may be reactionary underneath the apparent revolutionary interest. Well, that's good. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct because the, the paranoiac here, I don't think it's so much about knowing everything in that sense in the traditional paranoiac way. It's about the, the creation of exclusions, right? And in that sense, like a majoritarianism, or like they use the word gregariousness. So yeah, you're right. In terms of goals, laws, rules, how groups are formed in that manner, their point seems to very much be that this is created, uh, just like you're saying, in veil of, the, um, of that which is not a rational uh, process, right? The paranoiac happening doesn't necessarily have goals in that sense, but the goals are sort of transplanted upon it, like you're saying, pre-consciously. So it, it is like a veil occurs. And in that sense, too, you actually, very interestingly, you have the production of goals here. But this is important, too, right? Because, like, one of the points they're getting at is, like, the whole idea of people saying, well, are you for the cause or against the cause? Yeah. You know, that that very point about a kind of gregariousness in that manner and I'm simplifying it quite a bit here to make the point. Deleuze and Guattari seem to be saying here, right? Well, what is this cause? Yeah, where they write, um, in the other case, the pre-conscious investment must, on the contrary, discover the necessity for a different sort of investment and must perform a kind of rupture with causality, as well as a calling in question of aims and interests. So in this sense, you're seeing aims and interests themselves actually called into question. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, 
you know, in in, in simple terms, you know, it's uh, the revolution must not be like this this grand scheme. You know, it must be born of necessity. And I think that it's you know from their empirical perspective, it's just that you know that uh, that the the the, the pole of the the schizoid uh, is just like out of necessity. You're doing something. You're producing something new instead of you know having this 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 pole of you know the rationalization of um of the revolution for example or you know placing goals but it, it works also for the capitalist machine but um there's there's this you know into this this uh whether it is capitalism as it functions or capitalism as it reaches a breaking point where you know subject subjugated groups become subject groups There's always those two poles of the paranoiac and the schizoid, and you can always go from one side to the other. So like one type of revolution, for example, would be this kind of paranoiac way of doing it. And the other one would be a more productive, positive, you know, vitalist side, if we want. Well, you'll, you'll get, if you understand revolution in a larger sense, you're going to get an oscillation of both. And that's, I think, the kind of awareness they're giving us here, because like, creating a revolutionary group, how are you going to deal with subjugation, right? How are you going to deal with the investments of that, which are occurring unconsciously? So a major point for them that I'm taking out of this is like, when we're talking about causes, goals, and aims, right? We shouldn't be blinded by them in terms of them uh, taking them for granted as signs, which yeah, I know is Roger's if, favorite part of the losing lottery, the semiotics. Yeah. Have you ever been like into like, college uh, student groups or any kind of political groups, you can see that, you know, there's moment of movement and there's moment of institution or institutionalization where, you know, the, the group will put their grip over, you know, the flux and will say, no, it needs to be that way. And they will try to correct things up. And so there's always this, I think there, you know, What they're talking about is real stuff that they've seen within the universities and within worker movements and, you know, within May 68. They they refer to real, um, you know, real delirium, the delirium of like pushing the boundary, but that the, the, the other side of like controlling what is being pushed and who's pushing and who's voicing stuff and who has the right to talk, who should shut up and who will decide or not. So there's always like this dictatorial perspective within you know micro politics and micro groups that is still there and i think it's it's a form of criticism of that yeah that's exactly right to give two examples from, since you brought up college i i encountered an atheist club and a christian club it was called crew and in both cases what you find is there's this sense of um where you can see a direct form of subjugation is where you can't be other than that So this is a way in which two subjugated groups, uh, and this is, I think, a more direct way of understanding the paranoiac in this sense. The, the becomings, difference, differentiation, all of that, even the functionalities that are available, become immediately limited, right? Because this is working through a means of exclusion. So even when we say, oh, yes, but anyone can go to crew, anyone can be there, right? We, we welcome the Islamic people there is still a sense in which you're expected to become Christian during that time. Yeah. And this is not, this is not a didactic argument against Christianity or crew. This is merely an observation about how this can actually function in any group. Because we could do, we could walk this out to a lot of different things beyond the religious. 
I'm just taking the easy example. Well, it's, it's the nature of uh, pretty much anything that becomes a very difficult to define social aspect. Uh, I am reminded of the famous Supreme Court line. Uh, I don't know what pornography is, but I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. The, the reality is that most of these things that are difficult only exist through a process of exclusion. I can't positively identify what makes a Christian. Uh, that's not a thing that exists inside of most churches, but I can tell you who shouldn't be coming to church at our church on Sundays is, is far more common inside of groups uh, just by the nature of them. Precisely. Authenticity in that manner is uh, created in relation to signs. But authenticity would still be a paranoid investment into um, submolar group. I can't wink on uh, on Mike, but wink. Yeah, fair enough. All right, I am going to move to the next paragraph, however, uh, so we can keep charging through. Uh, any last notes before I do? All right. In each case, the problem is different. It is not enough to construct a new socius as full body. One must also pass to the other side of this social full body, where the molecular formations of desire that must master the new molar aggregate operate and are inscribed. Only by making this passage do we reach the revolutionary break and investment of the libido. This cannot be achieved except at the cost of, and by means of, a rapture, a rupture with causality. Why did I say rapture? Desire is an exile. Desire is a desert that traverses the body without organs and makes us pass from one of its faces to the other. Never an individual exile, never a personal desert, but a collective exile and a collective desert. It is only too obvious that the destiny of the revolution is linked solely to the interest of the dominated and exploited masses. But it is the nature of this link that poses the real problem as either a determined causal link or a different sort of connection. It is a question of knowing how a revolutionary potential is realized in its very relationship with the exploited masses or the weakest links given system. Do these masses or these links act in their own place within the order of causes and aims that promote a new socius? Or are they on the contrary the place and the agent of a sudden unexpected uh, eruption, an eruption of desire that breaks with causes and aims and overturns the socius, revealing its other side. In the subjugated groups, desire is still defined by an order of causes and aims, and itself weaves a whole system of macroscopic relations that determine the large aggregates under a formation of sovereignty. Subject groups, on the other hand, have as their sole cause a rupture with causality a revolutionary line of escape. And even though one can and must assign the objective factors, such as the weakest links, within a causal series that made such a rupture possible, only what is of the order of desire and its eruption accounts for the reality this rupture assumes at a given moment in a given place. Uh, that last sentence is uh, cited as referring to, quote, on the analysis of subject groups and their relations with desire and with causality, see Jean-Paul Sartre, Critique of Dialectical Reason. Yeah, I can't mention um, that earlier in chat, but I don't think he's listening now. 
<laughs> he found a line of escape. I think he, he muted himself. We'll, we'll give it a second, because I think, unless anyone else is a major export, expert on Sart, uh, which not, uh, I know Kent has read it extensively. And I'm, I'm with Angus. I, I'm, I don't understand their point about causality, ultimately, inside of this paragraph. Okay, so I can try to do a thing with that. Like, uh, I've, I'm not super deep in the text. I haven't read this before, and I'm just listening right now. Okay, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But, um, yeah, back on incoming. So what I said earlier, right, um, with, um, with that desire or, or goals that only exist in retrospect. That's ultimately um, the Bergsonian point about the future not existing. The future needs to be produced and the future not existing means that it doesn't exist as differentiated entities, which basically would be the point about intentions or goals, right? If you have intentions or goals, you, you basically um, imagine that there are like fully differentiated objects of thought that just need to be realized, but they don't ultimately change. You just add um, the 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 predicate of of existence to something that's actually that's already formed. And uh, the Bergsonian point now is that this doesn't make sense at all, because in that in in that conception, you basically accept the determinist framework. Everything exists and, and time just passes through this already existing thing. And um, the point is to get to a conception of reality that in which time actually matters, in which time um, duration is actually referring to a change of the world and um, in that, which basically necessitates that we come to some kind of break with causality um, in the sense that, um, so the Bergsonian break with, with causality is that he basically says in real time and duration, causality doesn't make sense because causality is predicated on the possibility of, of states of the world repeating, which can't happen because every moment contains all of the past. So the moment that is now is different from the moment that was just a second ago, at least by the fact that it contains the last moment. Um, and this is, this is linked to, uh, to, uh, to, this, to, uh, to, to this evolving or durational view of reality where where future does not exist in the sense because um, that's exactly the process, right? You, you have this virtual um, that differentiates into the past. The present is exactly not a static moment, but the process of differentiation of the virtual future, if you want to call it that, into the past. But by going through this process, the, uh, only by going through this process, the future of this, these uh, distinct entities are differentiated. 
these this process of differentiation that's exactly like um later commentators have identified this with um with the notion of passive synthesis uh, which is ultimately taken from Husserl. Um, I don't think Bergson himself speaks in this terms, but um, Deleuze, himself, Deleuze is very clearly drawing Husserl and, um, and, and Bergson together in this idea of passive synthesis with the um, Bergsonian virtual. And yeah, the virtual has, is, has this kind of ambiguous status because it's at the same time... Um, like the mode of existence of the past, but also the the material which differentiates into the future, uh, or which uh, differentiates into more past, which in Bergsonism Deleuze speaks about qualitative multiplicities always splitting, always differentiating themselves, being divisible in that sense, in contrast to the quantitative multiplicities. I'm not sure how he does this all in um, difference and repetition because I haven't read it, but from what I know about it, what I've read from secondary literature and what I've seen in Oedipus, is very close to his reading of Bergson in that regard. I hope this kind of helps with anything. I've got a bit in rambling mode, I think. No, I think that's really great. Um... And does anyone have any quick response? Because I think it's worthless, actually. The, the next couple paragraphs dig a little bit more into this, but that was a phenomenal explanation. Uh, I think we could argue about, you know, the usage of virtual and actual, but uh, I think that, that that works in a certain manner because in, in, in uh, you know, for example, in, uh, if we take a city, uh, like the present of a city, for Deleuze and Guattari, it's not the actual. It's the virtual bits that, and the actual would be the, the abstract machine that is uh, producing it. So there's always this weird shift, and I don't know if they um, changed um, the way that uh, Bergson was applying those concepts, but I feel that there's like some sort of a reversal there. And, you know, for example, the, the, the future as a... Um, the, the future is a moment of actualization of the abstract machine. It's, it, it's not virtual in the sense that, you know, um, it is, it's not something in reserve. It's something to be actualized. So I, I don't know. It's maybe like a difference of uh, understanding there. So I think just a short note on that. Um, I've been saying that, the virtual and actual are very Deleuzean concepts, not so much Bergsonian concepts, because uh, Bergson doesn't really develop them systematically. Like he doesn't ever go and say like, this is the actual and this is the virtual. And he's not even consistent about his usage of the virtual. He has points where he uses virtual basically interchangeably with possible, which at other points he vehemently uh, disputes. Um, and Deleuze, that's really what Deleuze does in, in Bergsonism. He kind of distills a notion of the virtual. And I'm going very much by um, the notion of virtual that is in Bergsonism here, not difference in repetition or uh, a thousand plateaus or anything. And yeah, I think um, to be actually useful, you need to bit, you, you need to clarify farther. And I'm actually not sure about the actual and all this like 
it's a working understanding that I'm operating under here, which is why I say, take everything I say with a, a grain of salt, even if I kind of seem knowledgeable now. I'm going to make a note that during our review, we need to spend, and maybe we actually just should have a discussion at some point where we really go over the concept of virtual, actual, possible, potential, and really define out uh, these terms because it's, I, I think it's a really worthwhile discussion, but it, it helps clarify a lot of things as well. So, um, but at point though, hmm. I think we need to go back to the tests because that is a very interesting discussion of time, actuality, virtuality, potentiality, and all these, uh, these very other interesting terms from Bertsonian and Deleuzian conceptions of time. But I think mm -hmm. the key here is where they discuss, where they write, in the subjugated groups, desire is still defined by an order of causes and aims, and itself weaves a whole system of macroscopic relations that determine the large aggregates under a formation of sovereignty. Subject groups, on the other hand, have as their sole cause a rupture with causality, a revolutionary line of escape. And even though one can and must assign the objective factors, such as the weakest links, within causal series that made such a rupture possible, only what is of the order of desire in its eruption accounts for the reality that this rupture assumes at a given moment in a given place. So the point here is, I think, in a very simple sense, Subjugated groups, right, they organize, they are organized in terms of direct causality, where everything is supposed to be exclusionary. The becomings are all working together, uh, or at least are, are taken to be working together under the, you know, the veil of the rationality in that sense. But there's, they're thought to be instrumentally working towards some larger purpose, some greater goal, or that they are all mutually cause, um, causal. The subjugate, uh, the subject group is a response to that in a sense, right? The subject group breaks from all that. So this is in a sense like, supposing you have an institution or a group crop up around this goal, like the, the Surrealists. When Artaud was kicked out of that, they give him as an example of a subject group, even though he's a person. Artaud's break from the, um, the Surrealists allows Artaud to both create and progress um, a whole series of projects, in many cases uh, that wouldn't have been possible had he been trying to be a surrealist. It is clear how everything can coexist and intermix. In the Leninist break, for example, when the Bolshevik group, or at least a part of this group, becomes aware of the immediate possibility of a proletarian revolution that would not follow the anticipated causal order of the relations of forces, but that would singularly precipitate things by plunging into a breach, the escape or revolutionary defeatism. In reality, everything coexists. Still hesitant pre-conscious investments in the case of some people who do not believe in this possibility. Revolutionary pre-conscious investments in those who see the possibility of a new socius but maintain it in an order of molar causality that already makes of the party a new form of sovereignty. And finally, unconscious revolutionary investments that perform a real rupture with causality in the order of desire. And in the same people, the most varied kinds of investments can coexist at such and such a moment. The two kinds of groups can interpenetrate. This is because the two groups are like determinism and freedom in Kant's philosophy. They indeed have the same object, and social production is never anything other than desiring production and vice versa, 
but they don't share the same law or the same regime. So to basically expound on my, my previous point, having a, a red card in that sense isn't actually revolutionary in that manner. Uh, it's not, right, it's functioning as a sign in that sense. More directly, one can be within a subjugated group as a sub and be kind of interpenetrated in this respect within a subject group. But the larger point here is that uh, ascribement to a group in that sense is not going to guarantee the revolutionary line of escape. There is something revolutionary in this sense as an investment made by simply leaving or allowing desires to leave the group in that sense. Yeah, and I think we can we can take contemporary groups. You know, we're talking about the Bolshevik, but like I think like most people are young here, and it's you know something of the past. But we can take something like BLM or you know disabled people um, trying to get out of institution. It's the same kind of thing. You know, it's we don't to go back previously to what we were uh, reading before into the previous paragraph. You know, the, the, the state of affair doesn't express a causality um, that will produce a revolutionary moment. It's one event. You know, the concept of event will come later into Deleuze and Guattari, but there's, there's an event. There's something that happens. For example, somebody gets killed by the cop. And from there, there is a whole movement, a whole new collective intensity that rises up that actually pinpoints the the ontological reality of a subjected group and they create themselves as a subject group that is rupturing from the current state of affair to allow a new line of flight. Um, so it's, it's, and then, you know, within that group, there's going to be the more reformist and there's going to be people who are, you know, uh, asking for uh, black liberation or disability liberation. So, there's i think that we can it easily uh, take those elements and put this into contemporary movements yeah because majoritarianism begins to allow for the weaker links they're talking about here the majoritarian in that sense is moving because it's understood through right the gregarious in that manner aggregation these things are changing and in that manner this is kind of how you, you start to get these potentials for revolutionary investments is these, you know, these uh, sort of minorianism, I don't want to use that word, these kind of minorities in that sense, that which is sort of um, in contrast to the majoritarian, that which is not part of the gregarious, but also is a condition for the gregarious. In that sense, you have a potential for becomings there that are actually being excluded. And this is something that groups do have to deal with. Yeah, and you know when they say a still hesitant pre-conscious investment in the case of some people who do not believe in this possibility, you know, you you are into the U.S. and you know there's a discomfort. Everybody knows that racism is there, that there there's differences, and you know there's inequalities until that moment. That becomes clear, and the abstract machine that actually is, uh, you know, creating. Uh, the structure of racism is being named. And the moment is being named, it opens to a whole world of possibilities of, you know, smashing racism, smashing the white man, smashing the institution. And all of this becomes something that was uh, hesitant before and uncomfortable to something that passes as a fact. Mm -hmm. But then comes re-territorialization, right? 
Yeah, because there's a possibility of, you know, the molar is recognizing itself into this moment as well. So there's there's a movement, there's a translation, uh, you know, everything starts to shift. Well, and the other part of this, um, how I how I read this, what I got from it, and I like it, is um, the idea that it's it's we shouldn't be thinking of these events as uh, singular. We shouldn't be thinking them as uh, large monolithic groups. Uh, that in reality, as they say, everything coexists. There's all of these investments, not just in terms of different people having them. Uh, oh, this person is interested in revolution. This person doesn't believe it's possible but much more that all of the people themselves actually have their own pre-conscious investments across the board that are fitting all of these. These varied kinds of investments can coexist. The two kinds of groups can interpenetrate. It's because the two groups are like determinism and freedom. They indeed have the same object, but they don't share the same law or the same regime. I like, I like the way of thinking about that. The, the removal of the monolithic uh, largesse of singular groups and instead thinking about it as I mean, we're talking about hyper-contingent events that are contingent on a major multiplicity. We're lots of things. Major. <laughs> lots of shit that, that, it, that puts into it. Yeah. And in that sense, right, being a part of any group, as though you can be a part of it till you just get tired of it or whatever, right? You know, that's not the victory in and of itself. Or conversely, you know, just because you're, you, you've got these goals in that manner, you know, in this sense, in the molar sense, right, as though everything is, it has this trajectory that that is just, you know, indelible, right? That's got no way of accounting for the flux that is actually producing all of these things and the contingencies um, that condition it. And you know, with that, I think, go ahead. Sorry. No, go for it. I'm, I'm about to move on to the next paragraph. You'll take the last note. I'll just, I'll just say it quickly. It's just a sort of a side thing. I, all this discussion makes me think about a book that really changed my life when I was younger. Um, Imagine Communities by Benedict Anderson, I think his name is. Um, and he, you know, is a famous book where he's kind of arguing that like the, the his basically nationalisms are all these to be nationalist or to think that you're part of a nation is to be part of an imaginary community. And, you know, this is how it works and historically. And he traces it through like the printing press and all these like revolutions in Latin America and all these things. And it's a very, very compelling book. And it was important for me. But it's it's interesting looking back. Like I still think there's stuff that you can get out of that. But well, again, what I think is useful about this framework is like if you go with the imagined communities thing, like what Jack was saying of like what does it mean to be part of a group? You know, the way we conceive of it is you, you join a group. You're like I am this now, and then it and then what's what's really happening is that there's loads of fluxes and there's different ways that we are participating and being inflected by by the preconscious interests and the unconscious uh, preconscious investments and unconscious interests, all those things. But we kind of flatten all and sort of like it was said earlier, like it, it becomes this paranoia concealment of that, of the, the way in which participating in social spaces in the social is, is a continuous, like there's constant enunciation happening. And so you could look back at the imaginary community thing and be like, that's, that's useful. But like nationalism doesn't just exist in people's minds, you know, and they don't just all come together and agree. Now we are this thing. Like it's, it's a much more concrete and materialist process, I think. And that's kind of what they're getting at, in addition to the conscious and unconscious aspect. To make just a quick note, and with that point, nationalism is always, it's not so much the nationalism in the, uh, this larger sense, right? It's always about 
you're, you're fitting into the group, right? Whether it's a sports team, whether it's a discord server, whether it's, you know, whatever the group is, it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm an American. All right. Now let's continue. The actualization of a revolutionary potentiality is explained less by the pre-conscious state of causality in which it is nonetheless included than by the efficacy of a libidinal break at a precise moment, skiz whose sole cause is desire, which is to say the rupture with causality that forces a rewriting of history on a level with the real and produces this strangely polyvocal moment when everything is possible. Of course, the skiz has been prepared by a subterranean labor of causes, aims, and interests working together. Of course, this order of causes runs the risk of closing and cementing the breach in the name of a new socius and its interests. Of course, one can always say that after the fact that history, after the fact that history has never ceased being governed by the same laws of aggregates and large numbers. The fact remains that the skiz came into existence only by means of a desire without aim or cause that charted it and sided with it. Well, the skiz is possible without the order of causes. It becomes real only by means of something of another order. Desire. The desert desire. The revolutionary investment of desire. And that is indeed what undermines capitalism. Where will the revolution come from, and in what form within the exploited masses? It is like death. Where? When? It will be a decoded flow, a deterritorialized flow that runs too far and cuts too sharply, thereby escaping from the axiomatic of capitalism. Will it come in the person of a Castro, an Arab, a Black Panther, or a Chinaman on the horizon? I can't believe I'm on fucking text saying that word. Uh, a May 68, a homegrown Maoist planted like an anchorite on a factory smokestack. Always the addition of an axiom to seal off a breach that has been discovered. Fascist colonels, start reading Mao. They won't be fooled again. Castro has become impossible, even in relation to himself. Vacuoles are isolated, ghettos created, unions are appealed to for help. The most sinister forms of dissuasion are invented. The repression of interest is reinforced. But where will the new eruption of desire come from? Real quick, the, uh, the reference there is uh, to... Andre Glutzman has analyzed the nature of the special counter-revolutionary axiomatic, and I'll wait for Roger to correct me, Le Discours de la Guerre, the Discourse of War, perhaps? Yeah, Le Discours de la Guerre, War Discourse. Um, one specification, French-English, um, referring to a Chinese person. Um, in the French version, they were using N-words, previously, and this has been changed by the English translator. But um, in French, it's Chinese, and it morphed into something else, into English. So, you know, we can see how certain type of racism is accepted into the English-speaking world, where another kind is not accepted. This is really interesting. Well, and I think their, their point, if they use... Uh, they use certain words. I, I I tend to lean on, and of course they have probably some level of, of racist, uh, imperialist, they're French and at the time, but uh, the provocative nature of use of these is kind of their point. That there's a... They're, they're, will it come in the person of a Castro? Like, of these people who are um, C 
seen as, uh, especially by, and I, I think maybe this may be an extreme statement, I don't know. There's a fetishization of minorities by the liberal white class where they believe that, oh, that no, that's where revolution comes from. It comes from these poor minorities or these under underclass people. And uh, that fetishization, I think, is also part of what they're mocking a little bit here. You know what just occurred to me in reading this section? I really like this the this little par the sentence, the fact remains that the skits came into existence only by means of a desire without aim or cause that charted it and sided with it. While the skits is possible without the order of causes, it is real only by means of something of another order. Desire, the desert desire, the revolutionary investment desire. I, I, we've been kind of circling around this anyway, but I was just thinking back to our discussion and uh, Mohamed Baziz came to mind, who was the Tunisian street vendor who set himself on fire. And that kind of was kind of not the only event, but one of the major flashpoints of what ended up becoming the so-called, you know, the Arab Spring and that. But I think it's such an interesting, like, freeze, sort of, if you think about it, of like, that, th th there was a power in that, that um, act of self-annihilation was an, it was like, you know, I'm not advocating that kind of thing <laughs> as a political platform. I'm just saying, if you look at it. That that was this extreme, like you know, his being was being pulled taut by his inability to sell his fruit and his wares in the streets, and the frustration with the dictatorial regime and all these things. And what he ended up doing was this: it was it was it was an act. Of, it was like desiring machines being pushed into this like public space of like, okay, I'm just going to do this. I need to do this thing. I can't do anything else anymore. And it was just stark thing that it you know that it's not that that you know caused this or this is like the only cause or whatever. My point is just trying to think of how what happens in revolutionary moments isn't, you know, the, the, the like democratic centralists want to think that you can kind of plan a revolution. And I think probably at best what you can do is you can ride the wave and try and, you know, push it in different directions, which is I think what we saw, we saw with like Egypt, the way that was re-territorialized into like, you know, CC now and stuff like that. My, my point is just the what sparks it, it there's, it's like Lou said earlier, there's a way in which like uh, something is put into the air to make sound it cheesily. Um, like there's a new feeling in the air and that sense of things ends up informing how people behave, but it's not in and of itself. Like Mohamed Barziz did not go into the street thinking, I'm going to take down the Ben Ami regime because they're corrupt dictators. He was like, I can't fucking take this anymore. I'm going to go do this thing. So I, I was just thinking about that. Well, it, there's, I read a little, just, 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 just one thing. Uh, this is really interesting because my ex-girlfriend, uh, we worked on this together. It was her thesis for the, uh, um, her bachelor degree. And she was calling it the debt assemblage in the sense that the Boise, uh, situation, we could actually see how, uh, preconditions would arise that would give rise to revolutions. And she was trying to like, from different perspective, the different situation, uh, see where those which element were coming into this assemblage that would you know offer the precondition of uh, an uprising so that's really interesting that you're mentioning this right there because i'm saying that it's been done before and it really sucks you know i don't have anything to do with my ex but it really sucks that she didn't pursue that because i think that was a really great idea and you're just like stating it right now again I had a slightly different, uh, I, I want to talk about this sort of uh, second half of this paragraph where it talks and goes from, uh, that is indeed what undermines capitalism, where will the revolutionary revolution come from, and in what will form within the exploited masses. 
It is like death, where and when. Uh, they then go on to basically say it'll be a decoded flow, deterritorialized flow that runs too far and cuts too deep. And because of the nature of how capital reacts to uh, breaks like that, it will be the, the body without organs will fall back on it as quickly as possible. And they give some great examples. Um, homegrown Maoist planted like an anchorite on a factory smokestack. Uh, the ability, there's always an axiom to seal off breaches that have been discovered, almost as if capital uh, was aware, a monster of sorts. Uh, colonels, fascist colonels reading Mao, so we're not fooled again. Uh, this is done. This is actually things that are done. Castro is an impossible. That's not, not going to disagree there. Uh, ghettos created for the Black Panthers. Unions are appealed to for help that... The, uh, the thing that runs and that goes through all of this is that the same breaks and flows that capital is able to completely re-territorialize is where revolution comes from. Uh, at least when we start thinking about, you know, where will it come from and demanding that sort of knowledge and thinking about it from that direction. Yeah, and this is an important point for them too because, like, again, with, like, the we should not confuse signs for for something more than signs, right? This is kind of Magritte's point about the treachery of signs, yeah. But um, more to the point, with Maoism, with Mao, with uh, the what, what happened in Cuba and then the Bay of Pids and that, we should not confuse things like um, the sign of Castro with something like a larger revolutionary investment that always has this, you know, this essence of revolutionaryism to it. You know, this is kind of what they're getting at is like, there's a kind of, um, there's almost a kind of idolism and therefore idolatry that comes with how we deal with the, the revolutionary, especially in the pre-conscious sense, right? If we could just be like Castro was before he, you know, before he was Castro later on, <laughs> you, you see, uh, to that point too, about like, we talked a little bit about like their use of terms here and like, especially the raciality. Part of what they're getting at as I read them, and part of the reason they're going to use terms that are considered derogatory, like, uh, for instance, the primitive, the savage, the barbarian, but also like um, uh, those more charged uh, words like uh, Chinaman, um, or particularly uh, the N-word in that sense, or some variant of it. What they're getting at here, too, is the way that this works in terms of production. These stereotypes are, are produced and very much in relation to the, I think, a kind of paranoiac investment. But they also present a form of becoming that is limited and in that sense that can be by univocalized. In a sense, um, to, to give you an example in a literary sense, this is like uh, Sinclair Lewis. So I mentioned uh, it can't happen here earlier on where, well, of course, we can't be the Nazis. We're in the good group. Uh, and those are conservatives anyways, right? But no, more to the point, in his novel, King's Blood Royal, the main character is uh, vehemently racist and uh, participates in a racist collectivity until one day when he discovers that he has black ancestors. <laughs> he becomes ostracized because now the code and the signifiers have been turned upon him. But in that sense, too, you start to see the, uh, Deleuze and Guattari's point about not only how this um, how this functions within the subjugated group in that manner, but also how like uh, what they're talking about in terms of like following a minority or looking for the weakest links, 
how there's a whole series of becomings and differentiation here that this actually does open up to us. Those who have read us this far will perhaps find many reasons for reproaching us, for believing too much in the pure potentialities of art and even of science, for denying or minimizing the role of classes and class struggle, for militating in favor of an irrationalism of desire, for identifying the revolutionary with the schizo, falling into familiar, all too familiar traps. This would be a bad reading, and we don't know which is better, a bad reading or no reading at all. That's a dick way to put it. That's a dick way to put it. And in all probability, there are far more serious reproaches to be made, which we haven't even thought of. As for those we have named, we hold in the first place that art and science have a revolutionary potential, and nothing more. And that this potential appears all the more as one is less and less concerned with what art and science mean from the standpoint of a signifier or signifieds that are necessarily reserved for specialists but that art and science cause increasingly decoded and deterritorialized flows to circulate in the socius, flows that are perceptible to everyone, which force the social axiomatic to grow ever more complicated, to become more saturated, to the point where the scientist and the artist may be determined to rejoin an objective revolutionary situation in reaction against authoritarian designs of a state that is incompetent and above all castrating by nature where the state imposes a specifically artistic Oedipus, a specifically scientific Oedipus. This is really interesting, and I feel that they're uh, answering the criticism we were doing uh, yesterday and earlier today. And so, yeah, they're conscious of the limits and conscious of how it could be taken by left-wing uh, oriented people. And, and kind of they're saying, uh, I mean, Again, it's a dickish way to put it, where it's like, look, it's a bad reading. They're talking about, there's potentialities here. That they're not saying, this is how revolution works. And I think they just described in the last few paragraphs why they're not doing that, because they don't want to give a goal or a structure to it. Instead, they're saying, look, these potentials exist. Here are where we're seeing them. Here's where we believe these potentials are at. And if you can sort of empower these people and, and look into that and play with these potentialities, we have a chance to actually really change stuff. And it, it ends with them. The, the lines here that really speak to me about, especially our modern society, uh, art and science cause increasingly decoded and deterritorialized flows to circulate, fours that are perceptible to everyone, which force the social axiomatic to grow ever more complicated, to become more saturated to the point where the scientists and the artists may be determined to rejoin an objective revolutionary situation. I, it, the timing feels like we're speaking about now. Like this is very much what's happening inside of a lot of uh, academic circles, as we have people in academia here that we're talking about, in artistic circles. Uh, it's, it's really an incredible... Uh, meaningful moment at least as i'm reading it just want to say and this will be very brief um if you're looking to see some examples of this kind of art at least as i as i think it can be very much argued uh, i would recommend adrian piper's work to continue secondly we have not at all minimized the importance of pre-conscious investments of class or interest which are based in the infrastructure itself but we attach all the more importance to them, as they are the index in the infrastructure of a libidinal investment of another nature, and that can coincide as well as clash with them. 
which is merely a way to poise the question, how can the revolution be betrayed? Once it has been said that betrayals don't wait their turn, but are there from the very start, the maintenance of paranoiac and conscious investments in revolutionary groups. And if we put forward desire as a revolutionary agency, it is because we believe that capitalist society can endure many manifestations of interest, but not one manifestation of desire, which would be enough to make its fundamental structures explode even at the kindergarten level. We believe in desire, as in the irrational of every form of rationality, not because it is a lack, a thirst, or an aspiration, but because it is the production of desire, desire that produces real desire, or the real in itself. Finally, we do not at all think the revolutionary is schizophrenic, or vice versa. On the contrary, we have consistently distinguished the schizophrenic as an entity from schizophrenia as a process. Now, the schizophrenic as entity can only be defined in relation to the arrest, the continuations in the void, or the finalist illusions that repression imposes on the process itself. This explains why we have only spoken of a schizoid pull in the libidinal investment of the social field, so as to avoid as much as possible the confusion of the schizophrenic process with the production of a schizophrenic. The schizophrenic process, the schizoid pull, is revolutionary in the very sense that the paranoiac method is reactionary and fascist. And it is not these psychiatric categories, freed of all familialism, that will allow us to understand the political-economic determinations, but exactly the opposite. You know, this little line should be served as people who are trying to find, you know, um, salvation with their own psychological condition reading the uh, and Quattari, because this, this happened quite a lot, and it's, uh, this, this confusion should be at the beginning of the book, and at the beginning of every of their books. I just, I love this almost very direct call. We believe in desire as in the irrational of every form of rationality and not because it is lack, because it is the production of desire, desire that produces the real in itself. Is such a clarion call to kind of their philosophy of things. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I need, does anyone have questions on this? Because I'm just going to move on because it's such a clear paragraph. What if we don't want you to finish? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to finish. We've got like, what, two pages, three pages left? Um, One, uh, half a page. Yeah, not, not much. Um, uh, Guilfoyle has a great question. We're going to do it. We're going to answer a question. Produces the real on itself? Huh? Um, not, not on itself, in itself. Um, and I think this is, and Ken still here? Ken is still here. I think this is a response again to the Lacanian classic psychoanalytic play that lack is where desire comes from, that our lack of things is what drives us forward. They're saying, no, desire in and of itself, uh, the production of desire, the, the desire that produces real desire is the real in and of itself. I think it's really about, like, they say this earlier, right? And they, they make clear that their real is not like the Lacanian real, but they actually talk about the naive reading of the Lacanian real, that it's actually reality, right? We are talking about the process of production of the world, right? And it's it's at the basis of their process ontology. We are talking about the real ontological level where this process happens, 
they they have at the beginning of chapter four somewhere the the sentence that where they say that the desiring machines are matter um and I think we should take that serious, right? They are talking about reality here, not about some psychic thing that's they're talking about material reality it, because ultimately this is a schizo analysis schizo uh analysis is about a material psychoanalysis a materialist perspective am i wrong i i think a material here introduced an unnecessary difference because sure. they sure. basically get get rid of every notion of a distinct psychic existence um which is what uh, Ham, uh ken and i were getting at a bit earlier in chat um if if we introduce um a notion of psyche here again we need to be careful because like traditional notions of the psyche don't really work and I wouldn't want to slip too far into like pan's psychism with what's going on here. Fair enough. Uh, let's, Gilfo, uh, please join us uh, for our review of this. We're going to, let's make sure we go over this paragraph specifically. Um, I'm going to continue to the next paragraph, however. <clears throat> and then above all, we are not looking for a way out when we say that schizoanalysis as such has strictly no political program to propose. If it did have one, it would be grotesque and disquieting at the same time. It does not take itself for a party or even a group, and does not claim to be speaking for the masses. No political program will be elaborated within the framework of schizoanalysis. Finally, schizoanalysis is something that does not claim to be speaking for anything or anyone, not even, in fact especially not, for psychoanalysis. Nothing more than impressions, the impression that things aren't going well in psychoanalysis and that they haven't been since the start. We are still too competent. We would like to speak in the name of an absolute incompetence. Someone asked us if we had ever seen a schizophrenic. No, no, we have never seen one. If someone reading this book feels that things are fine in psychoanalysis, we're not speaking for him. And for him, we take back everything we have said. So what is the relationship between schizoanalysis and politics on the one hand, and between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis on the other? Everything revolves around desiring machines and the production of desire. Schizoanalysis as such does not raise the problem of the nature of the socius to come out of the revolution. It does not claim to be identical with the revolution itself. Given a socius, schizoanalysis only asks what place it reserves for desiring production. What generative role desire enjoys therein, and what forms the conciliation between the regime of desiring production and the regime of social production is brought about, since in any case it is the same production, but under two different regimes. If, on this socius as a full body, there is thus the possibility from going from one side to the other, i.e. from the side where the molar aggregates of social production are organized, to this other side, no less collective, where the molecular multiplicities of desiring production are formed. Whether to do, whether and to what extent such associates can endure the reversal of power, such that desiring production subjugates social production and yet does not destroy it, since it is the same production working under the difference in regime. If there is, and how there comes to be, a formation of subject groups, etc. 
This is the part where everyone looking for the political program throws their book against the wall. <laughs> Just buy armor instead. Yeah, well, it's, I think, the almost what they're saying in here. Let me try to say it in a different way. Uh, Oedipus does not, uh, is not a political program in and of itself. It is a process and a way of doing things within psychoanalysis that produces uh, itself and moves on. It, it is a process that begets itself, a uh, self-replicating idea. Capital works the same way. Schizoanalysis is not a guide to a revolution or a map that takes you there. Instead, it's a process that teaches you how to find where desire is actually coming from and how to find where revolutionary enjoyment and jouissance may be experienced. That's how I read this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. That's that's interesting because um, as I was doing my dissertation, I was asked the same question. They're like, "So what you're proposing? You know, what's the where's the mode of instruction?" And I'm like, using delusion thought, I cannot really. I can like you know offer a different view of reality. How could things be otherwise? But it's for the people to actually take this mode of analysis and analyze their own existences and like build from this. So, you know, like I'm just like pointing to things that are wrong, things that are, and I, I think that, you know, that's, um, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, how'd you say this? That's a good way to actually put it at the end of the book saying, you know, this is not, this is not a new book of the new Testament, you know, it's not something that gives you the way to paradise. It just tells you to like map your way, cartography it, <clears throat> and maybe find a way out. Well, I mean, they almost said two paragraphs, three paragraphs ago that uh, they almost said, hey, we can't give you a guide. If we said here are the 17 steps to revolution, capital would go, oh, shit, and find a way to re-territorialize it. And produce a Peterson oh, with 24 rules. Even if even if capital didn't do that, this is sort of like I think the critique of like you know democratic centralism, so called. Like you can have a whole you know very detailed writings from Lenin and all the years leading up to the revolution in 1917, the first revolution and then the the, the two in 17 and all that. And you know the, even without even though it's interacting with capitalism, of course, but even if there wasn't that kind of like pressure, even within itself, you know it. it very quickly it wasn't like people like to think that oh it was like when stalin came around and things kind of got messed up like go you know go read about like war communism go read about the nep and all these things like even the my 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 arch nemesis zizek funnily enough is right when he does his introduction to one of lenin's books where he's like and trotsky as well where he's like this is this idea that like these things weren't these possibilities for this what we would call re-territorialization weren't there already in the idea of these programs which which were you know they leaned heavily on the concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat to kind of justify you know ends justifying the means and stuff you know is is facile it, it was always there and to like kind of place it at a later date is to excuse all the excesses and the you know the 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 suppressions of the srs and the crunch stunt and all the rest of it under the name of like oh this this pure thing that was sort of like d dissolved or something yeah it's uh they're saying uh it's uh Communism failing as it did in Russia is not a bug, it's a feature, I think would be how I'd put it, that this is how the code was built. You just didn't, you just didn't notice it, couldn't tell that they had all these prior investments at a basic desiring machine level that actually made sure that this is how this was going to turn out. It wasn't one person shows up and cleaves the world. It's uh, that the underlying code is written in this way to produce shit. Uh, I'm going to continue to the next uh, paragraph. We're... 
uh, yeah, we're going to finish this. I'm not, I'm not going to leave two paragraphs for fucking next week. So we're going to finish this out and uh, have a lovely discussion. End this this year. That would be amazing. If someone retorts that we are claiming the famous rights to laziness, to non-productivity, to dream and fantasy production, once again, we are quite pleased since we haven't stopped saying the opposite and that desiring production produces the real and that desire has little to do with fantasy and dream. As opposed to Reich, schizoanalysis makes no distinction in nature between political economy and libidinal economy. Schizoanalysis merely asks, what are the machinic, social, and technical indices on a socius that open two desiring machines? that enter into the parts, wheels, and motors of these machines, as much as they cause them to enter into their own parts, wheels, and motors. Everyone knows that a schizo is a machine. All schizos say this, not just little Joey. The question to be asked is whether schizophrenics are the living machines of a dead labor, which are then contrasted to the dead machines of living labor as organized in capitalism. Or whether instead, desiring technical and social machines join together in a process of schizophrenic production that thereafter has no more schizophrenics to produce. In her Lettre, let, letter of ministries. Lettre ministre. Letter of ministries? Is that, I just. Yes. Uh, there are two ministries. Ministries are like uh, the politicians here, like the head of. The, uh, the ministers. The, yeah. Yes. Uh, Maud Minoni writes. One of these adolescents, declared unfit for studies, does... Oh, hi, Dexter. Uh, give me two seconds. Sorry, guys. Sorry, my son's coming in, bringing me a cup of ice. Yeah. Are you going to share that cup of ice? I, I will. Um, you better. Let's see. Uh, everyone knows that a schizo is a machine. All schizos say this, and not just little Joey. The question to be asked is whether schizophrenics are the living machines of a dead labor, which are then contrasted to the dead machines of living labor as organized in capitalism, or whether instead desiring technical and social machines join together in a process of schizophrenic production that thereafter has no more schizophrenics to produce. In her letter to ministers, Maud Manoni writes, one of these adolescents, declared unfit for studies, does admirably well in a third-level class, provided he works, in some, works some in mechanics. He has a passion for mechanics. The man in the garage has been his best therapist. If we take mechanics away from him, he will become schizophrenic again. Her intention is not to praise ergotherapy or the virtues of social adaptation. She marks the point where the social machine the technical machine and the desiring machine join closely together and bring their regimes into communication. She asks if our society can handle that and what it is worth if it can't. And this is indeed the direction the social, technical, scientific, and artistic machines take when they are revolutionary. They form desiring machines for which they are already the index in their own regime, at the same time that the desiring machines form them in the regime that is theirs and has a position of desire. A fucking great paragraph again uh they should they, we really this should just be at the beginning of the book and then they should be explaining everything afterwards <laughs> it's such a clear crisp uh, the mod Manoni line here talking about the schizophrenic uh who had tons of trouble in school uh tons of issues uh began doing work he had passion for actually doing physical labor uh, uh, building things putting together puzzles of machines uh Man in his garage has been his best therapist. 
we take that away from him, this, this process that he's producing, this building, he will become schizophrenic. I love that turn, that turn of phrase as they're trying to connect it with the desiring machine. That, and there's, there's a very nicely placed social criticism here, right? Because then the question would be, well, what happens if we leave them there and they get like triggered, right? What happens if they, you know, the eco- somebody enters the ecology and things change? Shouldn't we take them out on that risk, right? But the the question they seem to be raising here is, well, what made, how is that even possible, right? Like, well, what could happen to do that? You know, in this sense, they're not trying to say that the, there's a problem. To, um, they're, they're almost problematizing the problematic in that sense. They're trying to unpack the very um, the very things that make that question and ultimately that move possible. Um, yeah, and and one thing I want to go back to is when they say the question to be asked is whether schizophrenics are the living machines of a dead labor, which are then constructed to the dead machines of living labors, uh, living labor as organized in capitalism. So, you know, we're talking about dead drives and, you know, in contrast, we could talk about life drives and, uh, you know, the negative versus the positive. And I think that's a really nice, really short way to understand how, you know, all um, this this schizophrenic are actually production of a dead world into a reach for life or a reach for sense or a reach for meaning. Um, and you know, as the, 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 the labor is, is, uh, is being created as, you know, as, as a negative within capitalism. What's the, you marks the point where social technical and desiring machine comes together. The, to me, that line, the idea that this, uh, this young man who couldn't exist inside of the social machines without falling apart and breaking. Uh, is able to produce and play around with mechanic. You know, let's say he's building a fucking car. He's able to build a car, be productive without any social pressure outside for other things. He's able to do it for the sake of doing it. And that machine is a machine unto itself. They talk about it. They say the line: uh, they form desiring machines for which they are already an index, uh, the index in their own regime. That he's doing this act. He wants to do this thing, he is doing this thing, and he's building a thing, all sort of ensconced inside of its own regime without having to be part of some larger, well, I'm doing this because I need to make money for my wife or because I'm trying to gain fame. He's doing it for itself. And there's a beauty in that act that that they're really driving at, and I really attach to myself. I think also... Part of what they're saying in this last sentence is the idea of um, like they they talk about in a thousand plateaus, like the idea of uh, the nomad defines its own space. Um, And one of the examples they give for that is the like a fractal curve, Um, like the the dimension of like a space filling curve is fractional and it's sort of defined by the curve itself. And I think that that's like a something they come back to often about um, just, you know, the nature of like the authentic definition of space. And I think that that's what they're kind of what they're talking about with the um, artistic projects and scientific projects that define their own regime.
All right. Any last yeah. comments? Oh, just to play off that and through an interpenetration, right? Through a communication. But yeah, I, I like how you phrased that. Definitely. Last paragraph. Is everyone just excited as I am? What? Let's do this. What finally is the opposition between schizoanalysis and psychoanalysis when the negative and positive tasks of schizoanalysis are taken as a whole? We constantly contrasted two sorts of unconscious or two interpretations of the unconscious. The one schizoanalytic, the other psychoanalytic. The one schizophrenic, the other neurotic Oedipal. The one abstract and non-figurative, the other imaginary. But also the one really concrete, the other symbolic. The one machinic, the other structural. The one molecular, microphysical, and micrological. And the other molar, or statistical. The one material, the other ideological. The one productive, the other expressive. We have seen how the negative task of schizoanalysis must be violent, brutal, defamiliarizing, de-edipalizing, decastrating, undoing theater, dream, and fantasy, decoding, deterritorializing, a terrible courage, a malevolent activity. But everything happens at the same time, for at the same time the process is liberated, the process of desiring production, following its molecular lines of escape that already define the machine mechanic's task of the schizoanalyst. And the lines of escape are still full molar or social investment at grips, grips with the whole social field, so that the task of schizoanalysis is ultimately that of discovering, for every case, the nature of the libidinal investments of the social field, their possible internal conflicts, their relationships with the pre-conscious investments of the same field, their possible conflicts with these. In short, the entire interplay of the desiring machines and the repression of desire. Completing the process and not arresting it, not making it turn about or in the void, not assigning it a goal, will never go too far with the deterritorialization, the decoding of flows. Or the new earth, in truth, the earth that will one day become a place of healing, is not to be found in the neurotic or perverse reterritorializations that arrest the process, assign it goals. It is no more behind than ahead. It coincides with the completion of the process of desiring production. This process that is always and already complete as it proceeds, and as long as it proceeds. It therefore remains for us to see how, effectively, simultaneously, these various tasks of schizoanalysis proceed. Congratulations, people. We've one, one thing about the series of defamiliarize and stuff. They, there's one term that is missing here. It's defalicize, like to defalitize. Uh, and I think that would be important because it, 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 opens up to a whole you know feminist criticism also of uh the world so this is missing into the english version but in french it's there there's more missing we are we are celebrating that we're through but if you look in any french edition that i found or any other translation than the english translation there actually exists an appendix to anti-edipus in English, I think it was published in one of uh, Guattari's solo collections. Yes, this is true. The appendix is called the uh, 
program for a desiring machine. So th there's a program. There's something follows with the program. Now, there you go. Just as soon as we had our goal in sight, it is gone. So now we have the, uh, the full explanation of that. And uh, we will be reading other things. But for now, um, I want to thank all of you for joining us on this extraordinary journey. We are not done yet. We have a handful of things we are going to be doing uh, uh, going on. We're going to be reading other books. We're going to be doing continuing AO, uh, which is hilarious. We're going to be doing so much more. But just uh, thank you all. I want to say thank you because the last nine months of my life, um, I have been dedicated to this which is weird. Um, so it's super surreal to kind of be finishing at the end of the year. Uh, I promised I'd try to finish it by the end of the year. I could not have cut it closer, so there we go. Um, thank all of you very much for joining. Uh, this has been a journey.